This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brott. Hey there, welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, the founder of MrDad.com. Though parents want to be understanding, warm, and closer to our children, moms and dads often end up feeling like drill sergeants, yelling, pleading, bribing, or caving. With the rise of empathic, mindful parenting, traditional methods of timeout and punishment have become taboo, but there really haven't been any tangible strategies to replace those things. As a result, guilt-ridden and clueless parents are left looking for answers. But without the right direction, they often end up feeling overindulgent or so frustrated that they end up resorting to yelling and punishing after all, which is what they were trying to avoid in the first place. What we need is a balanced approach to discipline and not punishment. We need an approach that's going to be both empathic and effective, and it needs to be easy to remember and follow. Well, here's the good news. My guest for this part of today's show co-created an actionable three-step plan called ALP, which is for attune, which means let your child know that you understand, L for limit set, tell your child how it really is and briefly explain why, and P for problem solve. Thousands of my guest patients have incorporated this approach into their lives and have become much more effective and connected to their kids. And you can too. Today's show is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union, which is proud to serve the Armed Forces veterans and their families. And if you're a member of the Armed Forces or Department of Defense, they would be proud to serve you too. Federally insured by NCUA. When I have an asthma attack, I feel scared. It's kind of like an elephant is on my chest. I feel like I'm choking. Sometimes my parents have to take me to the hospital. You know how to react to their asthma attacks. Here's how to prevent them. Call 1-866-NO-ATTACKS. Visit www.noattacks.org or call your doctor. Because even one attack is one too many. I feel like a fish with no water. Brought to you by the EPA and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brought. My guest for this part of today's show is Julie Wright, who's the co-author with Heather Turgeon of Now Say This, The Right Words to Solve Every Parenting Dilemma, a three-step approach to effective communication. Julie, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Well, let's talk about the, the philosophy here behind the book, which is, I mean, you're kind of coming to it saying that in a way, parents have been so scared to do anything these days that we don't know what to do. And <laughs> right. is that about right? Well, it, that's a broad it, it's generalization. More, it's more subtle than it's, that, I know, yeah. but Yeah, I mean, some parents, I mean, our starting point with what you're talking about is this idea that a lot of great books have been written about the importance of empathy and being a mindful parent and being warm and listening to your children. But what often seems to be missing for the parents who are reading those books and really thinking about those ideas and feeling like that feels right to me is that they find themselves not having the other side of the coin, which is how to hold a limit and how to be effective. So in other words, how to be warm and empathic 
and effective at the same time. And then, I mean, parenting, there's a lot of different opinions out there about parenting. There are a lot of people who feel like being warm and empathic and understanding is too indulgent. Um, and those parents um, often also feel like at the end of the day that something's missing. They're not quite sure how to connect deeply to their children while also being an effective parent. Yeah, the, the whole complicating factor here, which I guess is the complicating factor about life, is that there just is no one right answer to all of these things. And so for some people, why it, it might sound perfectly reasonable to be warm and empathic, it just doesn't work. Well, it does work in our approach if you also remember to set and hold the limit. So a lot of parents start with the warmth and the empathy, but then uh-huh. they haven't really been taught how to do the next step. Our approach is a simple to remember three-step approach. It can be modified and morphed for almost any difficult moment in life, not even just as a parent. But what it means as a parent in a difficult moment, especially if your child is breaking a limit, is that in most cases, if nobody's about to, you know, step off the curb in front of a car or pick up a, you know, a sharp knife, is that the first step is to attune to where your child is emotionally and intentionally. So to give them the sense that you're listening to them and trying to understand them first, because that's where the connection and that's where the learning happens. But the second step, and we don't wallow or spend too much time in that assumed step. We just want to give the child a sense that we're really connecting with him and listening to him and taking his intentions or his feelings seriously. But the second step is the limit setting step where we we state and hold the limit. And there's different ways to hold a limit. Um, but I think the biggest mistake parents make regarding all of this is that they feel they have to be judgmental or reprimanding or use a sharp tone in order to hold a limit. And we know that that's not true. There, there are many ways to hold a limit and let a child know that you're not going to cave or change your mind or um, be indulgent or permissive. Um, in other words, that you can have both. Right. And that's what we're trying right. to tell all parents. You can have both. You don't have to choose one or the other. Okay. All right. Well, I think the best thing to do here is to take us through some examples. And there, I should also say that there's the third part of this, because you mentioned that it's a three-part thing. And the third part is kind of tools for future success, in a way, is, is figuring out how to problem-solve, thinking about alternate solutions, uh, essentially giving the, the child the, the kernels of the tools that they'll be able to need to solve their own problems when they get older. Exactly, and it also underscores for them that their intention is perfectly understandable. Often their choice or their behavior is not, but usually what they're going for or what they're feeling, if you really get under what we call the tip of the iceberg, is really understandable. So in the problem-solving step, we're doing everything that you just said, plus we're also in the moment helping them fulfill their wish or intention in an appropriate way. Okay. All right, so let's come up with a a hypothetical situation of a difficult moment, since that's what we'll call them, difficult moments. So I I think probably just the one that just pops into my mind is 
getting a kid ready for school in the morning. Okay. First thing in the morning, and probably every single parent has had some version of difficulty getting their kid out the door in the morning. And you're, the kid is just, just not moving, and no matter what you try and cajoling isn't working, what do you do to, to show? Let's start off with the, the attune part. How do we attune to them when what you really want to do is just pick them up and throw them in the car? <laughs> exactly. And it is one of the most common and really difficult problems. So the first step, the attune step, is to do your best, depending on the age of your child, to figure out what's going on in their head. And often with something like this, it's, it's a simple statement like, you're really having a hard time getting dressed or whatever step they're not doing, or if they're not doing anything, you're really having a hard time getting ready for school. I can tell. I can tell this is hard for you, or I can tell you're really interested in what you're doing. You're really having a hard time pulling yourself away from it. So it's, it's a moment of getting down on their level, getting close enough to them physically that they really feel you're not just saying these words because Julie and Heather said you should, but you're really letting them know you see them and you hear them and you understand that what they're doing in that moment to them is important. Okay. That's, so that, um, that, that's the attuned step. Okay. And, and you're hoping for what sort of a response from them? Well, by attuning to a child in that moment, the first thing that you're doing is you're, you're getting, you're giving them the sense that, you're on the same team as them. You're not coming at them in an oppositional or judgmental way. You're coming over and letting them know you understand. Little children have very little sense of time. They don't understand how important it is to, to get things done quickly or how that relates to anything. So in that moment, you're opening the doors of their cooperation just by being kind and understanding and letting them know that you see them and hear them and feel them. So you're, you're really opening the doors to what's going to come next rather than coming at them in a more stern and sort of reprimanding fashion. So is it a, a conversation you're supposed to be having here or this is just a setting the stage for something else? Because I can imagine a, a child could stop and look at you and think, huh, okay, he or she really gets that. Or the response could be, no, I just don't want to go. L- <laughs> right. Leave me well, alone. You have to be ready to connect with wherever they are. You're, as a parent, we usually have a pretty good idea of where they are emotionally and, and what, they're, what they're going for. Um, and, of course, humans are complicated. They might also not just not want to go. Um, but if you have a kid who doesn't like to go to school, then the more attuned thing to say would be, I know it's hard for you to go to school, you know, to get ready for school because you're having a hard time going to school right now. You know, so if you know your kid well enough to know that that might be the more pressing issue, you might leave with that. But to answer your earlier question, in most cases, it depends on the age of the child, but in a case like this where time is of the essence, you're really not opening up a debate or a conversation. You're really just taking a moment to take them in and to connect with where they are. So the attuned step could be as simple as, one sentence, I can see you're having a hard time getting ready. And then you might move right in your very next sentence without waiting. You're not asking them a question. You're, you're, you're making a, an observation 
um, your very next step might be. But as you know, we do have to get ready for school this morning. It's time. We have to do it now. So that's the limit setting step. Um, and the limit setting step is a statement. Um, what has to be done or what rule is perhaps being broken. And in the limit setting step, the only add-on we usually do, if it's relevant, um, is a brief explanation. So we want over time for our children to, to know that we're not just issuing rules and orders, mm -hmm. but we're explaining why. Like We really want them to internalize a sense of right and wrong and why we do things that we do so that they feel... They also feel much more part of the process if we do that. Right. So in this case, Wait, Julie, you know, hang we have on. to get to school on time. Yeah. Go ahead. Talking with Julie Wright, who's the co-author of Now Say This, The Right Words to Solve Every Parenting Dilemma. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to pick up with this exact scenario and, and follow the rest of it out through the, the second half of the second step and then the third step as well. I'm Armin Brott. You're listening to Positive Parenting. Bullying is not kids being kids. It's not about good homes or bad homes. It's not a normal part of growing up. I shouldn't be afraid to get on the school bus. To turn on my computer. Message. A lock to my locker. Did you know that a bully will stop his or her behavior in 10 seconds when their peers speak up? Use your voice. Hey, leave him alone. We have the power to stop bullying. Find out more at bullying.org. Where you're not alone. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Broad. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Julie Wright, who's the co-author of Now Say This, The Right Words to Solve Every Parenting Dilemma. We were just talking about this issue of trying to get a kid out the door. This, it's a time issue, and we've said, I understand that you're having trouble with this, but we've got to get moving, and where do we go from there? Okay, so you've, you've, you've just said the attuned step by saying I I can tell you're having a hard time with this. Right. And you've just said the limit setting step by saying, but we do have to do this now. We do have to get you dressed and ready to go now. The third step, which is the problem solving step, often and especially in a case like this, has what we call a follow through choice. So what you might say in the problem solving step, um, depending on the age of your child, is you know, we definitely encourage using humor when we're trying to cajole our kids into getting, you know, getting ready and following their steps. We might have already set up a chart for them, a, a visual chart of the steps they need to do in order to get out the door. Um, but, you know, just seeing if, if they'll say, if you, can, if you can humor them into, you know, getting their clothes on, having a race to get the clothes on, um, uh, just funny ways, you know, laying the clothes down on the floor and asking them to scoot into them. You're going to do your best to help them move through their steps and to use a chart to follow their steps. But if, if they don't, if they're still resistant, then follow through steps involve us taking more charge. And you said earlier, just, you know, we're so tempted to just throw them in the car and I'm not above throwing a kid, not throwing them, but putting a kid in the car with their clothes and saying, you know, we do have to go. Um, and somehow getting those clothes on, you know, 
once the car stopped. Mm-hmm. I had a family who had this issue, and and we didn't we didn't specify an age for this scenario, but this little girl was old enough to not be like carried around and forced into her clothes. And um, what happened was I asked the parents what would happen if she was late for school. And they looked at me like I was from another planet. And they said, oh, you know, we don't know. We never, we'd never let that happen. And I thought, oh, well, um, why not? (laughs) You know, so this would be a good example of letting a natural consequence take place. A lot of parents protect their kids from natural consequences. For instance, you know, you get to school late, you have to go to the office and get a pass and whatever the protocol might be at school. And it's amazing how parents will, you know, turn over, you know, do somersaults and stand on their head to prevent their child from having to suffer a natural consequence. So this family finally, you know, with much prodding from me, um, let it happen for this little girl, let her be late. And that was the last time they ever had a hard time getting her ready because she didn't like, she didn't like the natural consequence. Okay. Now I want to so go back to the, the yeah, go uh, ahead, no, go, go ahead. I, I just wanted to go back to the limit because I, when, mm-hmm. when we were talking about limits, I was thinking it was going to be some sort of a consequence that is established by the parent, but you're basically just saying we have, but we have to go or so are, are maybe we should take another kind of a scenario where you're, or, or are you establishing a limit and saying, if you go beyond this or you don't do what you're supposed to do by a particular time, there's going to be some sort of a, a consequence. Um, we, we do use consequences in the book. They're not, um, they're usually in the form of relevant or natural consequences, but we don't use consequences for every situation. We're much more interested in communicating to our children that certain behaviors are not okay and helping them with what they can do, um, then making it like a, a punishment or a consequence. All right, that makes sense. And then, just generally speaking, what's the the idea with the? Uh, is there? I don't even know how to ask the question exactly, but for the for the third step, for the the skill building set of that, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. what's your you're thinking there. I mean, are you thinking long term that that we want them to be able to, as I as I said earlier, be able to make these decisions on their own? Absolutely. There's so many things that go into the problem solving step. It's one of my favorites. We want children to think about solving problems in a broader way. So one of the things we can do as parents is show them that there's more than one way to solve a dilemma or fulfill an intention. We also want to, over time, step back and in the problem-solving step, perhaps say, you know, what do you think? Or what do you think is um, a better choice here? Or what could you do instead? Or what's your plan? So we call this concept scaffolding. And it, it's a parenting, it's a term that's used in, in parenting. Um, and what it means is that when your children are little, your children are the building and you as the parent are the scaffolding. When they're little and weak and the building's still growing, they need a lot of scaffolding. They need you to give them ideas and suggest solutions to their problems. But as they grow, the idea is to gradually take your scaffolding down and give them more responsibility to make better choices and to come up with ideas and to collaborate as their building, as they, their building, gets stronger and taller. 
so it's really a process of of collaborating with them and giving them we believe that children are capable and do want to do the right thing and be an important member of the family it's not that we're shaping them or or molding them we're we're uncovering that which is already inside them so we want to give that a place to bloom and flourish we want to give that part of them that has natural empathy and natural desire to to help and be part of something and to collaborate we want to give it room to grow Okay. All right. Let's take another another scenario that's not quite as as time sensitive. Something that is is just maybe situational or or global, where a child is hitting other kids or biting other kids or doing things that we've told them over and over and over again they need to stop doing that. How do we handle that? Take us through the the three steps there. Okay. The let's just say your child um, has started hitting, and this is very common in young children who are still developing language skills and can be very frustrated. They can be frustrated for all kinds of reasons. So hitting is a common way for them to express themselves. The first thing I I do, and we add a step in when there's any kind of physical behavior, we call it the safety step. And what that means is that the parent gets over there quickly and does everything possible to prevent the next hit from happening. It sometimes means you know, letting them know that you're going to move their body away from the other child or, or adult. Um, you might put your hands up to gently block their hands. It's so important. I've had so many parents say, you know, my child hits me all the time. And, and I said, well, wh- why do you let them hit you? Because in gently blocking them and preventing the hit, we're sending a clear message right away. And we say right away, we're we're just going to start by keeping everybody safe. And we say it in a calm, neutral way, not like it's the end of the world or like they're a terrible person, but that we're, we're there to help. Let's keep everybody safe. And then we move into the ALP steps. We say, you know, it looks like you, you know, we're, we're getting really mad. It looks like you really wanted something or didn't want something. That would be the attuned step. We let them know we understand that they were having some kind of big feeling. The limit-setting step in a situation like this is almost always the exact same thing. We don't hit people because it hurts them, period. The problem-solving step is, um, it depends on the exact situation, but um, if they're having a big feeling and they can't speak yet or they don't know how to express themselves in words, we can help them. We can say, you know, you can say, I feel mad or I really wanted that if they're too young to even do that you can give them a pillow to to hit on or help them you know hit the floor and you can say you can get your feelings out in lots of different ways that are okay we could put music on and do our you know shake our big feelings out dance so we want to give them an outlet in a moment like that because the feelings that they're having are very real mm-hmm. we just want to redirect their behavior into something that's appropriate Julie Wright is the co-author with Heather Turgeon of Now Say This, The Right Words to Solve Every Parenting Dilemma. It's a three-step approach to effective communication. Julie, thanks very much. It was great to have you. Thanks so much for having me.
You must be your fairy godmother. <laughs> yes. It doesn't take a fairy godmother to tell you that the right fit means everything. Good heavens, child. You can't go in that. Children under 4 foot 9 need to be in a booster seat because they aren't ready for adult safety belts alone. Remember that 4 foot 9 is the magic number and get your little pumpkin there safely in a booster seat. <laughs> oh, thank you. For more information, visit BoosterSeat.gov. This has been a message from the U.S. Department of Transportation and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and it's time for a Parents at Play segment. How many times have we told our kids to use your words? These great new games will give kids some extra practice doing exactly that. Word Rush from Tactic Games. Ah, another game where you come up with words that match a certain category. But this one has a few new twists. First, once a category card has been selected, Players turn over nine letter cards and then take turns listing words that start with one of those letters. Second, the instant you've said your word, you flip over the sand timer, and the next player has to say a word or flip the timer back before time runs out. The faster you answer, the less time you leave the next player. Of course, you can adjust the rules to make things easier or more challenging. Under $18, it's for two to six players ages eight and up. Tactic Dot net is where you can find out more. Word Slam from Thames and Cosmos. Yep, another get-your-team-to-guess-the-answers game, but with a few twists. First, two teams compete at the same time. Second, although this game is kind of like charades, the storyteller, that's the name of the person who's supposed to guide his or her teammates to the right answer, can't speak, sing, or act, and has to give clues using one of 105 word cards that feature an adjective, noun, preposition, or verb. For example, if your answer is school, storytellers might lay out cards with the words building, child, place, and day, or for GPS unit. Clues might include things like technology and man. Comes with 200 answer cards with a total of 1,200 terms divided into four difficulty levels. Also includes card holders, a timer, and more. Under $26 for two teams ages 12 and up, ThamesandCosmos.com Show me the Quan from Gridley Games. In this fast-paced game, someone picks a category card and players call out words that correspond to the flock of lettered dice. But as you might expect, there is a twist. One of the dice says first, second, or last, and that's the place in the word where the dice on the table must appear. For example, if the category is with a tail and the second die is showing... Correct answers would include otter, albatross, monkey, and ocelot. It costs about $12.5 for ages 8 and up at playgridleygames.strikingly.com. Wild Cards from Chronicle Books. This game is a variation on the classic game of war, but with a deck of beautiful animals, illustrated by Richard McGuire, that are ranked by where they are in the food chain. Higher cards defeat lower cards, but wild cards beat everything. For added fun, younger kids can sort animals into categories like ocean, forest, jungle, savanna, and arctic, or use the cards as conversation starters to talk about the environment. Costs just under $13 for ages 5 and up, chroniclebooks.com. Lamanos from Chronicle Books. 
If you guess that this game is dominoes but with llamas instead of dots, you're only half right. True, there are no dots, but figuring out which pieces match up with each other is a bit more complicated. For example, you need to match Lamonardo da Vinci and many other zany characters top and bottom. It's great for busting boredom, develops matching skills, and stimulates childish giggles, a sound that makes life worth living. Includes 28 Lominos, costs $12.99, and it's for two to four players ages three and up. More information at chroniclebooks.com. Superhero Snap Card Game from Lawrence King. Divide the deck in two, cards face down. Players then turn over one card at a time into the center area. When superheroes or villains, none of whom you've ever seen or heard of before, match, the first player to shout, Snap! wins all the face-up cards. First player with all the cards wins the game. It's that simple for two players. LawrenceKing.com You can get a lot more information about toys and games and a lot of other great activities to do with your kids and family at our website, ParentsAtPlay.com. We'll be back next week with more segments for you. But stay right where you are because there's a lot more positive parenting coming right up. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brat, after this from the MrDad.com radio network. Hey, Dad. What? I can't get the ketchup bottle open. Here. Let me try. <clears throat> hmm. Yeah, it's stuck all right. <clears throat> Anything? Now watch. If you take your palm like this and smack it on the bottom right here, you can get it open pretty easily. Here you go. Thanks. You don't have to be a hero to be a hero. When you adopt a child from foster care, just being there makes all the difference. To find out how you can adopt, please visit our website at adoptuskids.org or call 1-888-200-4005. A public service announcement brought to you by Adopt US Kids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. Now, get ready for more positive parenting. With Armin Brott from the MrDad.com radio network. Welcome to the second part of today's Positive Parenting Show. I'm Armin Brott, the founder of MrDad.com. Thanks for staying with us. Most people have heard of postpartum depression, but what most people don't know is that anxiety and depression can also be experienced during pregnancy, and the impact can be both debilitating and devastating. In this part of today's show, we're going to be hearing from a writer, a blogger, a podcaster. That's all one person. She's also a mental health expert with her personal story about prenatal anxiety and depression, severe postpartum anxiety and depression, plus her recovery process and hope for the future. Our guest also is going to be incorporating the advice and wisdom and clinical knowledge from an expert in the field of perinatal mood disorders, and she's going to be talking about risk factors and warning signs, definitions, and recovery options. And to top that off, she's also got a lot of stories from other women who have experienced that type of anxiety and depression. 
no longer are women going to have to suffer in silence or question their symptoms or try to hide their feelings because the devastating effects of prenatal and postpartum depression can be confirmed, treated, and managed. So if you've been in this situation or you know somebody has, the reality of it is, is there is hope for a brighter future. And it all starts when Positive Parenting continues right after this. Ever notice when you have a baby, everyone seems to give you advice? From your mother-in-law, to your own parents, to your friends. But when it comes to the important stuff, like immunizations and protecting my baby's health, I trust my baby's doctor. She really listens to my questions about shots, gives me great information, and she works with me to make sure my baby gets protected. And that's something even my mother-in-law can agree with. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brunt, and my guest for this part of today's show is Rebecca Fox Starr, who's the author of Beyond the Baby Blues, Anxiety and Depression During and After Pregnancy. Rebecca, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So let's talk about one of the words here, which I think is something that people don't necessarily associate with depression. I mean, you hear a lot about postnatal depression uh, and baby blues and things like that, which is obviously part of the title, but... I think a lot of people don't realize that depression is something that can come up during pregnancy as well. And talk about that. And and is this only because we're told that women who are taking antidepressants for depression before they get pregnant should probably get off of them? And so is is it because the, the symptoms are coming back of what's already there? Or is this something that is caused or aggravated by the pregnancy itself? So I can speak to both um, kind of parts of your questions, but I will preface this by saying that I'm actually not a clinician. This is my story, and I do have actionable advice, but I'm going to speak from my own personal experience and the research I've done and the clinicians with whom I've spoken. Is that okay? That's fine. Sure. Okay. So to answer your first question, I, I really so appreciate the fact that you kind of honed in on the, on the word prenatal because that is the much lesser known, much lesser spoken about cousin, so to speak, to postpartum depression. Postpartum depression is kind of a buzzword. If people don't fully understand it, they at least kind of have a vague grasp of what it is. But prenatal depression, even for people who have access to medical care and who are, you know, have perhaps had babies before, don't always know that it's an actual diagnosable thing, Um, and I'm one of those people. So it's something that I really, with this book, tried to bring, uh, shine a spotlight on the fact that this does exist. There are star treatment options for it, and it's also a really, really good way to set oneself up for success um, if a pregnant woman is having symptoms of prenatal anxiety or depression. It does put her at a greater risk for postpartum distress. And so it's really important to catch. And just more simply, no one should have to suffer and struggle. And so often during pregnancy, women are told um, by no fault of any physicians or anything, but are told, well, you're pregnant. Of course you don't feel well. You're pregnant. 
that's how everybody feels. And there are some things that are quote unquote normal or statistically average or to be expected. But when the pain or the anxiety outweighs the joy, then I think it becomes something really truly diagnosable. So I'm really glad to be able to highlight the prenatal aspect of this. Um, to, to your second question and your second point, for, for it's interesting because my story is somewhat unique in that I did not have any diagnosable mental health issues before I was pregnant with my second child and experienced this. So number one, I had already experienced a normal pregnancy with my daughter, had a normal mm-hmm. postpartum period and did not experience any real diagnosable anxiety or depression that, you know, some things were scary, some things were hard, but totally something, the things were totally things with which I could cope. But with my son in 2013, so three, three and a half years later, I had prenatal anxiety almost from the very beginning. And I had no idea what it even was. I had no idea what was going on. I just know that I did not feel well, that I was nervous all the time. And I was like sinking into this dark abyss. Um, and in terms of the, the clinical advice and the medication, mm-hmm. it is, of course, a controversial subject because people don't generally want to take medicine of any kind when they're pregnant. And All right. You don't want to subject the growing fetus to whatever it is that's full strength for adults. Yeah. I mean, that makes perfectly good sense. Yeah. Exactly. And to be, we do so many things. We're told, don't eat deli meat, don't eat unpasteurized cheese. I know for me, especially with my first pregnancy, I didn't even want to take a Tylenol, which is considered completely safe for pregnancy. I just didn't want to do anything that would potentially harm a growing, a growing baby. And at the same time, as I'm sure you can imagine, they don't do a ton of studies in terms of things that can affect pregnant women because for, for Seems a little reasons. unethical, yeah. Yes. Yeah, well, let, um, let's see what happens if we have them take arsenic. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah. Like, who, with pregnant women, who's willing to sign up for um, experiments that may or may not have an effect on your growing baby? Uh, that's not super popular. But research does show, and from my limited layperson's knowledge, that there are certain antidepressants that are considered safe during pregnancy. And so it's really one of those risk-reward things, and it's a very personal decision. And if somebody is suffering to the point of being dysfunctional, um, someone is having so much anxiety that I'm not saying that they can't enjoy life and they're not happy, but I mean like everything from true, true, like severe anxiety and panic disorder all the time, to not being able to leave the house, which means the person's probably not eating properly. They're probably not sleeping well. Their cortisone levels are really high in their bloodstream and not getting the proper uh, prenatal care. That Then that's when you have to start weighing, well, these drugs are considered, these certain drugs are considered safe during pregnancy. Um, a lot of the anti-anxiety drugs are not. I know that there are certain antidepressants that are considered to be safe during pregnancy. Um, and you have to really kind of weigh what is better for the mother and the child in those situations. And again, it's such a personal thing, but there are yeah. a lot of instances that I was fortunately given, you know, given these examples of women who right. 
it would have been better for them to take medicine as opposed to not treating what was going on, even right. though they were medicating. That well, wasn't my let, story because I didn't know. Well, let's, let's rely on your, your experience and, and the, some of the people that you spoke with as well. Um, how, how is somebody who doesn't already have a psychiatric condition, somebody who, who is not taking medication, so may, like you, not be familiar with the symptoms of depression, how does she know when it's time to say, you know, maybe this isn't quite a normal thing that everybody gets mm-hmm. and maybe I need some help? Uh, that's, that's the big question. That's why I write what I write every day because I want to expose people to the fact that it is kind of a fine line in terms of what is how you're supposed to feel, what are the things that are expected during pregnancy versus the things that are, like you're saying, you've kind of crossed that line and it's, you're no longer okay. And how does one know? My personal barometer is, and I alluded to this earlier, but if you are finding that you can't really find any joy in your day, if the good and darkness outweighs any you know, color or light or vibrancy, if you can't enjoy any of the things that typically would make you happy, then that is something that I think you need to really consider seeking help for. And, but then you say, how does, how does one know to even know, if that makes sense? And that's why I'm trying to raise awareness. I'm trying to raise awareness with the general population, but also to these healthcare professionals, mental health professionals, so that when women are in the hospital going for just a regular OB checkup, the doctors do not just a physical exam and put a, um, a wand on the bellies to hear the heartbeat, but just do kind of a reality check with the woman. How are you feeling? Because they should really be trained to recognize some symptoms and saying, you know, are, are you emotionally okay? And they should, you know, hopefully at that point be able to make the necessary referrals if the person seems to be truly struggling. You know, do, do you think that that uh, the medical professionals are trained for this? I'm wondering because I'm just thinking back through through the course of, of three kids' pregnancies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the pregnancies that ended up with them being born. I mean, not that they were pregnant. Um, but I, you know, I, I don't know how many dozens of prenatal visits I went to, and I don't recall anybody ever asking the mom, "How are you feeling emotionally? Mm-hmm. Are, are you um, are you depressed? Are you happy? Or you know, or whatever it is? I mean, th- there's kind of how are you feeling, but the the question is physically. I think that's the the assumption. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Rebecca Fox Starr, who's the author of Beyond the Baby Blues. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I'm going to ask Rebecca to talk a little bit about the idea of, hey, how are you doing above the neck? At 4.15 p.m. at an office in Michigan, Angie Hicks is not at her desk. She's giving blood at the company blood drive. At the same time in the same office, Kevin Meehan is not at his desk. He's at the doctor. Kevin has cancer and needs another round of chemo. Kevin will need blood to fight his cancer. Angie's blood will help him win. When you give blood to the American Red Cross, you change a life. Starting with your own. Call 1-800-GIVE-LIFE or visit givelife.org to schedule your appointment to give blood.
Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and if you're just joining us, I'm talking with Rebecca Fox Starr, who's the author of Beyond the Baby Blues. And just before the break, I started to ask you a question about whether you think that medical professionals, OBs, and those folks are trained to deal with issues that are going on above the neck as opposed to below it. Yes, <laughs> that's a great way to say it. Um, I can't make a blanket statement about all professionals, but I know that I'm working really, really hard to try to get people to to listen in terms of the medical professional side of things, not just to put it on the women to have to ask for help, because I do think that I want to empower women to ask for help, but that's a lot to ask when somebody's, you know, really low and not in a good place. Do I think that the medical professionals are trained? The reason why I wrote this book in the way that I wrote it, and it's not just a memoir in my story, is it has, you know, actionable advice, it has research and has scientific data. It's, I wrote it so that it would be ordered and read by classes of medical students, which it has, in libraries and in academic. It's actually published by an academic publisher. I'm not saying my book is going to change things, but I'm hoping that the mental health dialogue is starting to become more um, more prevalent mm-hmm. um, between people because you know we are now fortunately talking way more about mental health than we ever did before. But I'll tell you that my you know this is 2013 when I had my son, and I kept saying I don't feel right. I am scared. I'm scared to have another C-section. Um, in fact, the day I went in for my C-section, my doctor, who's a great guy and, and a father of four, and I spoke to him within the last year, and he was in, expressed extreme compassion and sympathy for me, and I appreciate him very much. But at the time, I don't think he really knew just how bad I was. And when I went in for my C-section, he it was unplanned. My son came four days before his scheduled C-section. He's always been quite surprising to me. Um, my doctor said, wow, this is the most color I've seen in your face in months. And I wanted to be like, yeah, because I have not been okay. And I even remember at the very end, like I'm, you know, maybe 37 weeks pregnant, something like that, having my mom come with me because, you know, I was a 28-year-old woman. But I said, Mom, like, I need help. No one's listening to me. I, I think I need to deliver this baby because I can't take this anymore. And then, then you go to the risk reward of, you don't want to deliver a baby too early, of course, but you also don't want the mother to be to be suffering. So I think that there's a lot that can be done in terms yeah. of training physicians so that they can recognize, you know, as you said, above the neck as well as everything else that they treat. All right, let's talk a little bit about what's going on as far as treatment options once it's been decided, whether that's you decide on your own, if you're self-aware enough, or if you do get the kind of help that you need and you're talking to a mental health professional, what do you do about this to get yourself on track? Do you have to wait until after the baby's born so you can start taking medication? Or you mentioned that there are some that are okay to take during pregnancy. How, how does how does it all go with the, with, I mean, not only medication, but the the family support that you need as well? Support is so crucial. The first thing I would say is very general, but ask for help. It is scary. It is confusing. 
um, it's complicated because when you are pregnant, especially, you know, if you've tried hard to get pregnant or for whatever reason, it's a really complicated mix of emotions, including guilt, because you should feel so happy that you're pregnant. You know, this is what you've been wanting. You've been waiting for this. And to be expected to feel wonderful and have people say, oh, isn't this the best time in your life? And you look glowing. But to feel so miserable on the inside is its own exquisite form of pain. And so just asking for help is so brave and also completely crucial. Um, I will say that asking for help can come in many forms. For me, I, as somebody who didn't previously suffer from mental health issues, it was not, it was not like I had a therapist who I was seeing regularly who kind of picked up on it. I failed the postpartum screening in the hospital miserably. But at this point, I'd already given birth. Um, and they still, to be honest, didn't do anything. So I really had to advocate for myself. But what I would suggest for somebody in terms of a course of treatment, as you said, um, ask for help in a way that makes you feel comfortable. It really depends on each individual woman's situation. If you have a partner or a family member or somebody that you are close to and you can say, I don't feel right, then then that's, that's who you turn to first and just say, you know, I don't, I'm not feeling right. Um, in terms of more professionally, for, for me, I should say, my husband actually said to me, are you okay? Um, I see the light starting to go out in your eyes 10 days after my son was born. And because of that, I started to see a therapist mm -hmm. and that took me on my road to treatment. Well, so but that, that brings else, up, that brings up an interesting question as well, because there's, there seems to be another part of this. So there's ask for help, but there are going to be probably a pretty large percentage of people who don't really realize that they need the help. And that puts some of the responsibility, I mean, I don't, I don't want to say this in a guilt-inducing kind of way, but it's for, for people to be like your husband, to be paying attention and to offer help when they see that there's a problem and not assume that everything's under control. Completely. And it's, it's like, how can we reach everybody, all humans, physicians, people who are just partners or family members of pregnant women to say, by the way, during this nine months of pregnancy and then the postpartum period, keep a close eye out and watch out for these warning signs. That's what I've written about in my blog and my book, but that's not the majority of people in this world are not reading my words. And so I'm trying to raise awareness about that because it does put responsibility on a partner. But, and that's where, once again, most women hopefully are getting um, physical are paying physical attention during their pregnancy. So they're going to some kind of prenatal checkups and visits. And that's where you really want to try to get a doctor, nurse, whoever, a nurse practitioner, whoever it is that person is seeing to take note or to steer this person in the right direction. For me, funny enough, um, at 33 weeks pregnant, I got a migraine and I had to go see a neurologist and he was the only person to listen to me. And as I sat and sobbed in his office at 33 weeks pregnant, saying, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I want another baby, which 
is not an easy thing to say. And even now, four and a half years later, it's not easy for me to admit that. Um, this, you know, headache specialist who's an incredible physician said to me, I'm not worried about anything neurological with you, but I'm worried you're going to have this baby and develop a walloping case of postpartum depression. And as I sat in his office crying, he dictated a memo to my OB and said, you need to take this patient seriously. She, you know, she needs help. So had he not said those words, had I not Hmm. kind of broken down and had he not said those words, I don't know that it would have been so um, kind of in the forefront of my mind, not in a self-fulfilling prophecy type way, but once it happened and I started to feel really low after the baby was born, I kind of was, I was able to go back to that moment and say, somebody told me about this. I know what this is. I now know what this is. And so I knew what to ask for. And because I had shared that with my husband, he knew what to look for. But that was like almost a fluke. I was lucky that I got a migraine that took me to the neurologist <laughs> that gave me those words. We can't expect for that to happen to everyone. Um, but I think that what I said before really applies to anyone, like a, a doctor a support system member, like family member or partner or medical professional. You really have to say, is this person experiencing the typical tiredness? You know, this is difficult, physical pain, physical discomfort, either before or after pregnancy, or is this a true problem that we need to treat? And if so, how? Because, and and that's the place where you have to, kind of, as I said before, figure out the line between, okay, well, this is hard and I'm tired and I'm exhausted and I kind of wish I was off this hamster wheel, but I'm still like, oh my gosh, look at my baby. I'm, I'm happy and I'm enchanted. Birth, which is kind of my first experience of when I first became a mother in 2010. It was hard, but I was able to feel much more joy than any negative emotions versus the second time where it was a world of darkness. I couldn't find any joy anywhere. And fortunately, I had people around me who could see that and who kind of insisted when I wasn't strong enough, they insisted that I get the proper help. Rebecca Fox stars, the author of Beyond the Baby Blues, Anxiety and Depression During and After Pregnancy. Rebecca, what's the blog? Um, my, uh, my blog is called Mommy Ever After, like happily ever after. Yep. So it's just mommyeverafter.com. Okay. Hey, Rebecca, thank you. And a special shout-out to the folks at Navy Federal Credit Union for supporting today's show. They proudly serve the Armed Forces, Department of Defense, veterans, and their families. Federally insured by NCUA. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.